0: Uh, picking up where we left off. Now after the Sabbath as the first day of the week began to dawn Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, his clothing was as white as snow and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Don't be afraid, for I know what you seek, Jesus, who is crucified. Now, after the Sabbath is a timestamp, stamp, uh, which is, makes sense in that they wouldn't prepare dead bodies be on the Sabbath because that would make them impure. They couldn't partake in what was going on down at the temple. And this is Passover, so that what's going on at the temple would be uh, As kind of a sacred part. So they would leave the body and then finish the preparations. Preparations would take a long time. Uh, they would be rubbing uh, oils into the skin. They would be doing a lot, wrapping it in linens. We saw that uh, with uh, Joseph last week. And they take a break. So this is one of the spots, when you see now after the Sabbath, this is one of the spots that critics of the Bible will go after it. And, it, and there's actually there's a number of these in chapter 27, 28. There's just a boatload of these little contradictions uh, and I'll, uh, with air quotes, right? Contradictions between the Gospels. And of no other historical event do we necessarily get four Gospels plus, you know, Paul gives his record of, of, of his witness in Corinthians. So it's an odd thing that they go after these differences, these kind of slight differences on these very fairly minor points um, and then they call that a proof of, of contradiction, or, or that there's a problem. Uh, and I just want to give you a few of these, because th- these are the things that when we talk about our faith with people, they bring these things up, and they bring them up because they saw them online, and they, they bo- and, and they just kind of keep repeating them enough times to make to make it seem like a bigger problem than it is. But when you actually look into them, you get there. So when somebody says there's contradiction in the Bible, you you all know that you're you're mandated to ask the follow-up question. Where is the contradiction? And then we're going to go look it up and we're going to be Bible scholars and we're going to figure out if it's actually something that any sane-minded person would see as a contradiction or a problem. So let me give you a few examples. One is Matthew twenty-seven, twenty-eight, last chapter. They called the robe that they put on Jesus scarlet. But in Mark and John, John nineteen two, they call the robe purple. And so this is just one of those contradictions. Is it, is it scarlet or is it purple? The Greek word for... The coloring that's there is purpurus, which it, just a basic dictionary definition of purpurus as a dye, it's a red-purple dye. Or, or it would be easy to think of this robe or cloak having multiple colors. Or it would be easy to think of a purple robe that they put on him, but because he was bleeding so bad, it turned scarlet. So to any to, when you have multiple people seeing an event and they all go write it down, they're going to record it differently. Here's another one, Matthew 27:32. it says, Simon carries the cross. We covered that last week. And then in John 19, 17, it says Jesus carried the cross. So I'll say, well, that's a contradiction. Simon carried the cross or Jesus carried the cross. They don't consider the possibility that maybe Simon helped Jesus or Jesus carried it part of the way and Simon carried it the other part of the way. They just look at those those snapshots and then they say there's a problem with it. Here's another one. Matthew 12, verse 40 in this book, Matthew said, Jesus said, uh, you'll get the sign of Jonah, three days, three nights. So then we get to verse 1 of our chapter, now after the Sabbath. Well, after the Sabbath would be Sunday. Sabbath would be Saturday. Friday's when he was crucified. That's three days, but where's the third night? So these are the kinds of things that people would say, well, then that's a a problem of the Bible. And And at a glance, you're like, okay, well, that's interesting. Jesus said three days, three nights. What you need to do on situations like that is then ask the question, well, is that a figure of speech? Or is he trying to be chronologically accurate as we would today when we write a history book. So um, Matthew says in Matthew 28 verse 1, after the Sabbath, at the first day of the week began to dawn, this is when Jesus was no longer in the tomb. So he rose on the third day. So that's In the Jewish culture, that's a figure of speech. Esther 4.17 says she'll go in and talk to the king after three days and three nights. She goes in on the third day and it doesn't count the, the other night. 1 Kings 20, 29 has a time period of seven days, and the event happens on the seventh day. Uh, 1 Samuel 30, verse 12, same thing. Uh, in, In Three days and three nights is the figure of speech that's used. The event that happens happens on the third day. So actually when Matthew uses this language as a first century Jew, he's completely consistent with how he talks. So that's not something I'd base my eternal salvation on, right? Like, I'm not going to not believe in Jesus because of a figure of speech that's pretty consistent in the Bible, because by a modern reading, we don't like the chronology of it. Or the writing above the cross. All four Gospels have a slightly different text that they record as being what's written above Jesus on the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Or is it just King of the Jews? Or is it Jesus, King of the Jews? So they all use different languages. Not one of the four Gospels mentions that Roman tradition was to put a sign on the criminal in three different languages, Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. So none of them say that, though that we know that about the tradition of, of, of how they would do these things. So again, you have four different people remembering the event and recording what was there, and the consideration that they would all be summarizing parts of the sign and not trying to get it, quote, accurate. In fact, in the Greek, there isn't even such a thing as a quotation. They don't have that mark in their written language. So the way we're thinking about these things or those expectations being put on, an extra, on a, in any kind of historical text from this era, you'd have to consistently then apply those standards to every other historical text, which means you wouldn't really able to be able to claim that Julius Caesar existed. He did not have four accounts of his life. Alexander the Great, we do not have the kind of record we do about Jesus. Uh, Genghis Khan, we have virtually no record compared to what we have on Jesus. So you would literally have to go back and doubt every single piece of history that we record. But I think for deconstructionists, they're happy to do that. They, they would love to rewrite history any way they want, but we actually have texts from primary source witnesses about an event, and they agree completely on the main points of the event. Jesus rose from the dead. He was crucified, he, he, he died, he was buried, and he rose. And there's no inconsistencies there. In fact, I don't think any of the examples I've given are actually, by definition, a contradiction. They're simply different viewpoints on something, but they don't actually contradict with each other. Right? So, here's another one. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the women are at a distance, like we read last week, at the moment of death for Jesus. John 19.25 says Jesus talks to his mom and the disciple John. Well... Is that a contradiction? No, not really because Jesus was on the cross for three hours. So it's very possible that at the moment of his death, people were at a distance and that during that three hours at some point, Jesus Jesus talked to his mom and John. They don't contradict with each other, they just have a different story to tell. And John actually tells the story that he was part of. So when Matthew says the disciples were in hiding, that could be very much be the case. It doesn't mean that they're nailed to that spot for three hours. And that John, if John brought his mom down, that that could be a very short-term thing or he came in secret. Again, they don't contradict with each other. They just tell different parts of the story, which is consistent with how we tell stories. If you ask me what I did yesterday, I'm not going to, word for word, go through second by second everything that I did yesterday. I'm just going to say, oh, I went to this event and I saw this thing and I talked to these people. We all... uh, immediately summarize events and that of course is what's happening in these things too. So who prepared the body? We came into that last week, Matthew 27, 59. Joseph with Mary Magdalene and Mary sitting close by. But then in Mark 15, 37 it's Mary and Mary were beheld where Jesus was laid. And that's how they knew where the, where Jesus was laid. Luke 23, 55. The women, Luke doesn't even include names when he summarizes, it's just the women and they returned and prepared the spices. So the women actually came and did this. Well, if the preparation of the body took hours, clearly from those three to three accounts, the women are moving around. They're not static in that situation. So it's very possible that they're all right, and that's not a contradiction. A contradiction would be if Matthew said Joseph and Mary were there, and then Mark said Mary was actually not there. That would be a contradiction, because they, they're not mutually compatible. But all of these quote-unquote contradictions are actually mutually compatible. John 19.39 says, Nicodemus came by and helped with some spices, right? He got crazy with the spices. So when we look at Matthew and Matthew's perspective, I wouldn't talk about Nicodemus because Nicodemus isn't in Matthew. But that's not a contradiction with the book of John. John simply including that there maybe were more people there. So when you have a large list of people that are at an event... We don't necessarily need to list all of them. In all four Gospels, the, the women that go back to tell the disciples that Jesus has rose, and in our verse this, in verse 1, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. The other Gospels have longer lists, but that doesn't mean that Mary and the other Mary isn't true. It just means Matthew didn't list Joanna, uh, which is in Luke, or Salome, which is in Mark, or other, some other person that's listed in, in, in Luke 2. So when did they visit the tomb? Was it dark, John 20, verse 1? Was it when it began to dawn, Matthew 28, verse 1, our verse? Is it at early dawn, Luke 24, 1? Or is it after dawn or after sunrise, Mark 16, 2? Well, you could say those are contradictions, or you could look at the basic fact that it's a two-mile walk from Bethany to the cross. So if they left before the sun rose and they got there when the sun had risen that they're all actually true, that, that that walks actually take time, right? It's not a three-second walk to get places. So Matthew is a scribe, and when it comes to the sayings of Jesus, he's going to be writing those down, and he'll have these scraps. So the teachings of Jesus have to happen to be very consistent through uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And part of that is that they are using, uh, like, speech writing or or written versions of speeches that they're pulling from. When they compile their gospel, they're actually using some of those scraps and they're putting them together. And the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, seem to be using some of the scrap papers because they're so consistent. Now, if you had two gospels that were word for word exact with each other, that would be evidence that they were using texts or common texts that they're pulling from. So theologians say that there's maybe a Q gospel out there. I I think that's stretching a bit. Uh, But the Q gospel would be this common source they're all pulling from, but then they have these differences between them that really just strike as they're writing it down. And And a very simple explanation is the reason there's so many similarities between the gospels is because these people saw the same things happen. The reason there's so many differences between the gospels is because they're writing independently of what happened. So when we leave the teaching today and you go out and somebody says, well, hey, how was church? Oh, really good. What was, what was the sermon about? Not one of you in the room would use the exact same words to describe this teaching. Some of you would actually pull very different messages and themes out of this teaching that struck you and those are the things you would want to tell about. So we can't even get that kind of consistency with people leaving an hour after a teaching. Why would we place that expectation on writers that were encouraged to write their Gospels years after the events happened. They didn't have to write them immediately because they could go into a crowd and say, hey, you all saw the eclipse of the sun. You all saw the people rise from the dead. You all felt the earthquake. And they could, they could appeal to people's experiences so there was no need to write down a Gospel. Virtually everyone in their audience had seen and been at the events. But then 20 years later, you start getting teenagers that weren't there for it. And that's when the disciples all started to think, we better write this down. So they do. And they use those kind of the scraps of the speeches and they use some pieces that are held in common. And and then when they're doing these narrative pieces, they're writing based on their memory. That said, all of that is a distraction. (laughs) So you're thinking, can we just get back to the chapter, Sean? And the answer is, yeah, we need to. But all of those inconsistencies in the Bible discussions, I would argue they're a giant waste of our time because they're bringing things up that they wouldn't hold any other historical document to that standard. Or if they did, they would be at a preposterous level of just insanity. The entire book comes to one conclusion, that Jesus has rose from the dead, and the ramifications of that are eternal. If Jesus rose from the dead, it means it's possible to not die. That's absolutely incredible. And if we believe the facts that are presented, right? Matthew's not giving us opinions, he's saying here's what happened. He's giving us facts, events. And we and and we and I think sometimes when people go after these inconsistencies, it's not the facts that are the problem, it's their emotions and their resistance to following the word of God. So they start nitpicking. Cuz if they can nitpick, then they can justify to themselves why they're not following the eternal God and what he's commanded of people what he asks of us. So it's not the facts that are the problem when it comes to apologetics. It's their emotions that are their problem with the apologetics. Therefore, it's not worth getting into a rational discussion with the irrational people. They're just nitpicking. So let them nitpick. And, and at some point, when they realize they need Jesus in their life, we're waiting for you and we have a pretty amazing account of what happened. So 2 Corinthians 4 even if, our gospel is, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Like, even Paul understood this idea. We don't have to argue facts with people. The facts are laid out fairly well. Four gospels, 1 Corinthians 15, that's five different accounts of the resurrection. Not to mention, every one of the epistles has text that is reliant on a resurrection for the points that they're making. And there's no contradictions on that point. So these slight, subtle differences that aren't actually contradictions at all, I'm not going to base my salvation on those, right? The, the, The disciples, again, they'll say, well, they wrote, you know, 20 years after the events. Yeah, okay. They didn't need, they could just say, according to the scriptures, Because they could look at the Old Testament and say, everything that you saw happen was according to the scriptures. Therefore, the Jewish God Yahweh just made a move through Jesus Christ. Right? And and actually, they argued they're the same being, right? Jesus is in the incarnate form of Yahweh. And all they had to do was say, according to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15 For I delivered to you first of all that which I received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Like Paul just keeps saying it. They didn't have to do a gospel because they could just simply reference the Old Testament and they could reference people's own experiences. So that's why they waited to write the gospels. The point here, I think in Matthew's passage, if we get back to 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 the passage, is the honor that these women, these are the women that were keeping watch over Jesus. And they didn't do it for any gain. I mean, from their perspective, Jesus was dead. So it's their faithfulness to Jesus, even when it doesn't look like it's a, it's not a popular thing to do, to go care for a dead body, right? It's not something they're going to get anything from. In fact, they're exhausting their time and their resources to sweetly and tenderly take care of the body of their, their king, thinking that he's dead. So the point is that these women were the first to find out what an honor for these women, right? And it doesn't help Matthew's argument. They they wanted two male witnesses in a courtroom. So he's not making a courtroom argument here. He's just saying the history of what happened. In verse 2, it talks about a great earthquake. Matthew alone notes this, that there seemed to be an earthquake at the death of Jesus, but that there also was some sort of quake at the resurrection of Jesus. So, it could be an actual earthquake, but the same word, "seismos" that's used for earthquake is also used in the Greek for the word commotion. So it could could be that there was a great commotion at the tomb, right? So the women come walking up, and these soldiers are seeing things, and there's an angel sitting on a stone, and, and people are excited and running places. There's a commotion that's going on. All of the Gospels note a commotion at the resurrection of Jesus, and they note it in the past tense. So the women arrived on the scene, and there had been this commotion, and they see an angel. So an angel here at the, was at the nativity. Now we see an angel at the resurrection, an incredibly powerful being. One, one angel in one night in 2 Kings chapter 19 takes out the entire Assyrian army for Hezekiah. 185,000 people are killed in one night by one angel. That's the number of angels sitting on the tomb right now. So this grave that was a jail cell for a dead person is now becoming a place of victory, a place of, of rest, a place of well-earned comforts, in the words of Mary and Pippin. They're sitting on the field of victory, enjoying well-earned comforts. That's how they arrive. They come walking up, and look at there. There's an angel sitting on a stone, and the stone has been rolled away, past tense. Verse three, his countenance was like lightning, his clothing was white as snow. Very specific description that Matthew gives here. The angel was seen, it was observed, it was remembered, it was recorded. This is what it looked like. Thinking of lightning, like for a second, if their countenance is like lightning, like I don't know about you, but it's hard to look at lightning because it's moving, it flashes. So unless you have a high-speed camera and you lock that thing down, it is really hard to see the shape of lightning. Almost like looking at this thing, it, its face was moving, right? And his clothing was white as snow. They have a fear of him. So a fear of God is, is a kind of awe. It's not like a, a, an amusement park ride kind of thing, but maybe you know, there's the thrill that's there too. Um, but for those that see an angel and they are filled with sin, there's a dread or terror that goes with it. For a godly person or someone seeking the Lord, there's a there's still a fear of these beings that are so pure and so powerful. So the Roman guards can't handle it. They become like dead men and pass out, right? They, Or we would say they fainted, right? The women are able to actually stand in the face of this being, which says something about their character and the effect Jesus has had on them right? So they, they had to be, um, absolutely stunned and they, enough so to where they, they tell the disciples what this being looked like. And the amazing thing is there's this familiarity. The angel answered verse five and said, don't be afraid for, I know what you seek Jesus who is crucified. You wouldn't say, don't be afraid if they weren't afraid. They're, they're afraid. This thing's powerful for, I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. What a great message. For those that seek Jesus, they don't have to fear angels. We don't have to fear the judgment of God. We don't have to fear anything in the heavenly realm because we seek Jesus. That's the point. Then verse six, and here's the message, right? It's the Easter message. He is not here for he's risen as he said, come and see the place where the Lord lay. Uh, Beautiful, right? It, It is, he is not here, that's the fact he has risen it's explained as jesus said he he said he was going to do it prophecy's now fulfilled he's actually done it and then the invitation come and see come see the place where the lord lay right the invitation to confirm these details the women were at a distance in matthew and saw where he was laid and now the angel invites them to look and see that there's no body there anymore this is you know and i think it's the same thing today right the angel bears witness to the resurrection and he invites people to come check it out we too then bear witness to the resurrection we see what God's done in our life and we ask people to come and see come and look it changes everything right the chinese record that on this day a rainbow encircled the sun like a halo like there were things witnessed around the world when this happened we're going to see that jesus resurrected the body itself is healed, it's perfected, there's a new generation of the body. He's not just resuscitated in his old beat-up body, he is, he's risen in a newly generated body, yet with identifiable, uh, identifiable marks. He chooses to have the holes in his hands and feet to be touchable and feelable by the disciples. So this come-and-see-the-place idea is still an idea that we can use today. If you want to know where Abraham's buried, you can go to the tomb of the patriarchs. If you want to go to Joseph's tomb, it's right there. David's tomb, Absalom's tomb, you can go right to Jerusalem and see their tombs. Like, we know where they're buried. With Jesus, there's no body laying in a tomb anywhere. But we we do know or have some ideas where he was buried, but you can't go to his, you can't dig up his bones. With every other major religious leader, you can dig up their bones. And for me, that's the end of the story. If I can dig up their bones, I'm not interested. Because I want a God. I want a path to salvation that's eternal. So the offering of Christianity is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. He's beaten sin and death, and that's the offer he makes to humanity. And, you know, last chapter we read about Matthew, that the saints started rising out of graves all over the place. Really interesting account. So the resurrection of Jesus shows the the tearing of the veil in the temple and the tearing of the grave in the graveyard. There's a path to God and there's a path to life. This is the path that got bl- blocked back in Genesis, right? So when they ate from the tree of good and evil, God said, you shall not eat of it yet lest you die. They ate of it and then the serpent says, you won't die, and then they eat it, and then God says, okay, well, now you got to die. So he put them out of the garden to take away access to the tree of life. This was all about life and death from the beginning, from Genesis. So he drove out man, and he placed a cherubim, an angel, at the east of the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword, which turned every way, to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, if that path has now been reopened, isn't it interesting that there's a cherubim guarding the way? sitting by the 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 tomb and he's not guarding he's doing the opposite of guarding he's saying come and see and take a look so the there's no flaming sword but there is a lightning face right there's clearly power in both situations Uh, the tree of life then becomes the cross right John 14 6 Jesus said to him I'm the way the truth and the life no one comes to the Father except by me if you want eternal life you come past Jesus you have to deal with this resurrection and you have to deal with it in such a way that, 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 that God has laid out for us. The ministry of Jesus was to establish a new kingdom. He showed healing and redemption. He showed us what the kingdom looked like. The response to that kingdom is either joy and love or throughout the book of Matthew, ignoring Jesus, suspicious, being suspicious of Jesus, mocking Jesus, hating Jesus, and trying to kill Jesus. But the, the right response is joy and love. Oh my goodness, God loves us. What a, what, a, what a gift, I'll take it. The hypocrisy of the religious authorities is that after tolerating and rebuking Jesus, challenging and exposing Jesus, they then murdered unjustly and buried Jesus, thinking that the death would hold him captive. Luckily, we have chapter 28. It's not the end of the story. Jesus beats sin because he lives a sinless life. That doesn't mean he wasn't tempted. Matthew goes out of his way to show the temptation of Jesus. Jesus was tempted. The difference is Jesus as an incarnate human was able to be tempted and not sin, not follow through on the temptation. He's not chained to the to the temptation. He's not a prisoner to sin and to death. So he's beaten sin. Now he needs to beat death. So in beating sin, he he was now a spotless lamb that could be a vicarious atonement or a propitiation for our sins. He could, as a perfect human, satisfy justice and satisfy the eternal law that he set up as a just law that all evil needs to be reconciled for. might be a a weight in between the sin and and the consequences, but all sin will be accounted for. So as a perfect Propitiation for our sin—he's qualified, and then he is killed, and that death of Jesus simply breaks the curse. He's paid the debt for all that accept the gift. Every who wants to come into his family, because if you remember Passover, if you're you're in the household, you don't have to be biologically related, but if you're in that household, then the blood over the post, the wooden post. The blood of the lamb on it covers the sin. The angel of death just goes right past that household. So by not acting on temptation, Jesus is the first to know temptation and to not do temptation. So it's not just for him to die, because God is just, he makes death itself die, showing us that death can be beaten. The resurrection has eternal significance. If Jesus can be raised from the dead, God can raise anybody from the dead. And last chapter, Matthew pointed that out. All the saints were getting up out of their graves, displaying to all the world that death could be beaten. And 2,000 years have gone by. It's easy for us to believe the idiots that say everybody dies. But it's not true. And so we believe that on faith. That as God raised Jesus and he raised the saints, he will raise us too. Why? Because he promised he would. And that is such an amazing thing. So you have this resurrection, which is a clear sign that God accepted the sacrifice that Jesus gave. The Old Testament has a principle of a wave offering, where we take this thing and we give it up to God, and God says, thank you, I'll accept that, and then he brings it back to us. And then that wave offering's spread amongst the people of God as a feast and a barbecue, and it's awesome. Jesus then, as a burnt offering, is killed and given to God, it's important that he's fully dead, and God says, I'm gonna take that sin offering, and I'm gonna turn it into a peace offering, and I'm gonna wave it back to you. So when Jesus raises from the dead, it's full evidence that God has accepted the sacrifice for sin and death, and that he's giving it back. And in that doing that, he breaks the rules. He breaks death itself. So it also validates that a divine being took the form of man fully. Jesus was God and he claims that he was God and God accepts the sacrifice after he makes those claims. And then God he comes back so then you get ascension where he goes back to the heavenly realm. Which Steph asked this question, why is Matthew does why does he not record the ascension? And that's well interesting as we talk about kingdom, we'll come back to that thought. So having Jesus show you all of this in the Old Testament when he taught, that had to be a crazy 40 days. Like I wouldn't go back to work. I'd be like, no, Jesus, the resurrected guy, he's teaching a Bible study for eight hours today. I'm not going into works. So I'm going to call in Jesus. I'm going to do Jesus today, and I don't really care what you have. So he came to the disciples' access for 40 days and taught them through the Old Testament, saying, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. You see, it's all laid out, and it's all been fulfilled. Genesis 22, one just one story that had to, can you imagine Jesus teaching this to you? Hey, let's open to Genesis 22. You see how Abraham's taken Isaac up the hill? Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And then he said, now take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah. You remember when Jesus was baptized and God said, this is my son whom I love. See, it's right there. It was just It's a model so you know that it's there. By the way, the land of Moriah is where Jerusalem is located. And then it says, And offer him there as a burnt offering, a sin offering, on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. So it's one of the mountains. It's not Mount Moriah where the Temple Mount is, but it's one of the mountains by Mount Moriah. The only hill that's taller than Mount Moriah is Golgotha. It's likely on that spot that Isaac was brought up by Abraham to be the gift of the one and only loved son, which I shall tell you. So, and then verse three, so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. By the way, did Jesus come to Jerusalem on a donkey? Up the same hill? Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw a place far off. See how this just changes the whole story. Like you could just read this, but when you read it with a lens of Jesus, then verse six, So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son did Jesus carry a beam of wood up a hill? Yep. And Abraham said, my son, and this is the crazy, and I think I pointed this out when I taught it, the way Abraham words this, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering, literally in the Hebrew. And it's when Isaac's let off the hook. You know, he's offered up as a burnt offering and God says, "Ah, I don't want your son. I'm going to offer myself a lamb. for this this offering. And it's not coming yet, it's coming later. Can you imagine Jesus teaching that to his disciples? And the disciples are like, "Uh uh-huh, Yep, we get it. Because this is a resurrected person talking to you. And Jesus says, that's me. I'm the son on which the wood was blamed that came up the hill on a donkey on that same hill. I'm that guy and I'm the gift that God accepted as a burnt offering, sin offering, because I died for three days. But I am eternal, I cannot stay dead. So I'm resurrected on the third day in the same time that Abraham lifted his eyes and saw a far off place. And he said, people, there is a kingdom of God waiting for you. There's a far off place that I'm going to go prepare for you. That's what I want, just like with Abraham and Isaac. Man, and Isaac just goes traveling around, digging wells, bringing living water up out of the earth. Like it's a great chapter if you read Isaac through that lens. By the way, when Abraham comes down the hill, Isaac's not even mentioned right? And then Abraham tells Eliezer, who in the Hebrew, his name means God, my comforter, to go get his bride for his son, and he doesn't name Isaac. The next time Isaac's mentioned is when the bride arrives. So I think the Holy Spirit just took the name of Isaac out of that segment, just like Jesus is going to go away and prepare a place, and he's going to come and return for his bride. Like all of it fits the imagery, and that's the kind of Bible study. That's why this is important stuff. Verses one through six, all of this sets up like, Jesus rose. He's risen. And it changes absolutely everything. The mentions of the bride go on and on and on. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. How do you read that and not read the account of Jesus getting beaten? Like just again and again and again, parallels from Genesis to Malachi all over. And Jesus's message in Matthew is go tell people about this. You can't keep this to yourself. And everything in your flesh is going to want to shut up and not tell anybody how selfish of you. Go tell people the good news. Verse seven says in our chapter, verse seven, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. This is the angel speaking. So they went out quickly from the tomb with great fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples the word. To mix fear and joy in one emotion, the only thing I can think of is like a roller coaster ride right? You're terrified going up the hill, but you're really excited about what's going to happen. There's this giddiness to that feeling. Clearly the women were sticking to Jesus, but he says, go without delay to tell him, right? He's going to go before you. As we pursue Jesus, he's led the way on where to go, but notice that Jesus is going to meet them before they get there. It's in the pursuing of Jesus where we meet Jesus. It's not the sitting around and studying the Bible. It's the living our life, doing what the Bible says. It's where we meet Jesus, It's when we have those encounters where Jesus has promised he'll talk through us when we do it. That's why I love teaching the Bible. Like, when we teach the Word, we know the Holy Spirit's helping me do that. I love that. Jesus is raised for all of us with the expectation that we will see him and we will meet him. Are you ready to meet Jesus? And maybe there's a little fear mixed in with that, but there should be a lot of joy mixed in with it too. Are you ready to be before Jesus? Do you believe Jesus will forgive your sins? Because you know you have those sins. They don't go out of your memory for some reason. We can try to block them, but it doesn't always work. Are you ready to go? Do you trust that Jesus will forgive those sins when you meet him? He says, behold, I've told you. This is like in the Mandalorian, the old guy saying, I have spoken. And that's the angel. He's like, I have spoken. And for an angel, even the idea of lying or that's so beyond their purity that when he says, behold, I've told you, that should be the end of it. And from a being that powerful, That's why it's such a curse when Satan lies, because they're made to be messengers. They're made to be truthful. And this is a holy angel. By the way, out of all the hosts of angels, which one got this duty? Right? We know the name of some of them in other situations where they're messengers, but who got to be the one that said, he is risen? That angel, not named, has one of the greatest honors in the eternity of the world, like in all of the universe in existence. This being had the honor of announcing he is risen. I think tonight's cruel. With fear and great joy, they ran to bring his disciples the word. They're not dragging their feet. They know how to run. And when he, they're told to go quickly, they actually go quickly. I think this is part of meeting Jesus too. When God says go, we don't just go. We go exactly how God told us to go. And we do it exactly how he wanted. So they know the location of where they're supposed to run. They know how they're supposed to run but they don't know what's going to happen on the way. So Mark says, run to tell. In Mark 16, this is another one of those contradictions. Mark 16, 8 says, the women said nothing to anyone. Luke 24, 9 says, they told the 11 disciples and the rest. And in Mark 16, 10, uh, Mary Magdalene told just the disciples, not telling everyone on the way. Like, this is really interesting. So in the same book where they're like, well, did the women tell people or did the women not tell people? And for me as a believer, I'm looking at all four Gospels and I'm like, it's pretty clear they ran straight to the disciples and they likely ran past people that they didn't talk to while they went to the disciples. They wanted to go to the disciples first. So in the same book, book of Mark, in the same chapter, verse chapter 16, they said nothing to anyone, but then they went and told the disciples. So you'll find non-believers that pick this apart too. And it's like, you know, clearly the sa- the auth that's not what Mark meant. He meant he went straight to them, right? So The angel gives instructions, they follow them with fidelity, go quickly and tell his disciples. So then when you look at Matthew, the instruction was to tell the disciples, not everybody they ran past. Go tell the people ready to follow God that there's good news and go do that. So Matthew Matthew simply writes that there's four witness groups for this. And, And this is, I think, again, Matthew building his case. There's the angel attesting to the resurrection There's the women that attest to the resurrection. There's going to be Gentile Romans that attest to the resurrection. And then the disciples are going to see him and they'll attest to the resurrection. So Matthew lists these four groups. 1 Corinthians 15 builds that out a bit more. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. But some have fallen asleep. And after that, he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles. And then last of all, he was also seen by me as, as by one born out of time. So Paul's like, I saw him myself on the road to Damascus. We'll come back to this again, but if Jesus showed up to Paul on the road to Damascus, that was after the ascension. So does Jesus still show up to meet people today? Does he still grab people that are really lost and have to interject in that kind of way to bring people to him? Verse 9, the women, we'll do the first group. And as they went to tell the disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. So they came and they held him by the feet and they worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren, go to Galilee, and there they will see me. They meet Jesus on the way. That's like bonus. Like they're told they'll meet him in Galilee, but then they meet him on the way. I think that's great. Does that mean the angel lied? No, the angel didn't lie because they're going to meet him in Galilee too. When we follow Jesus, we often get way more than what we expected from Jesus. But we follow Jesus. Rejoice. In the Greek, it means to be well, to cheerful. And I like the, the translation cheerful. They're probably excited and fearful. And when Jesus says rejoice, he's just continuing to encourage that when we pick joy, we sometimes have to rejoy ourselves. We have to refill ourselves. It's a command to rejoice in which it's an awesome thing to be obedient to. We too are supposed to rejoice. You ever meet a Christian and there's just no joy in them? They're all angry and mad all the time. I I, I get angry sometimes, but the general disposition is one of joy, I would hope, for most believers. Why Why would you not put on joy when you go forth to do God's work? So if we want to have joy, we obey God, We come to Jesus. We worship him. We go and tell people about him. I mean, all that's built into just those two verses. Verse nine, they held him by the feet. Uh, That idea of, of, of being there. John accounts that he says to not cling to him, right? Like, let me go and go do what I'm asking you to do. I think sometimes as believers, we'd rather just be in a room and read the word all day. I mean, I know that sounds weird, but I just want to be in God's presence all the time. And God says, now and then I want you to let me go. And go out into that world and talk to people. And 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 go out and do those things. They worshiped him. A worship for a believer is like filling up with gas. It's just recharging, rejoicing, refilling. And that's part of when we're grabbing God's feet and we come to his throne. That's what we do on Sundays. I want to hear God's word because I want to know what he says. I want to sing God's praise because he tells me to let that praise come out. So we put on our joy every Sunday so that we can go tell people about the Lord. So Jesus receives the worship which if he's not God, that's blasphemy. So he doesn't, he doesn't tell them, don't worship me. He accepts the worship, which is either complete blasphemy in Jewish tradition, or G- Jesus is saying, I'm God, and therefore you should worship me. So he accepts that worship. And that joy of the Lord that he commands them, that's our strength. So he says, do not be afraid, command number two. He wouldn't say that if they weren't, didn't have legitimate fear of what's going to happen and what's going on next how are the disciples going to react to them? They're just going to think they're a bunch of silly women making stuff up. You know? And he says, don't fear. You know, what are people going to think when these women are running through town when they should be getting the water, right? And they're breaking those kind of stereotypes or, or social norms of their day. Well, don't be afraid. Do what I'm t- telling you to do. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but, a power of, of, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. He never asks us to believe in him despite our mind. He always says, rejoice, have no fear. And he gives reason for that. Tell my brethren, these are the same brethren. Like the word for that is like we would say brothers, go tell my brothers. Think of the grace that God just exhibited with that. These are the people that abandoned Jesus. You know, some might say, well, you left me hanging when I needed you the most. Jesus doesn't seem to hold any grudge whatsoever. And I just read over that the first time I had to have a commentator show me that like the fact that he says, my brothers, think of the healing that brings right now. You know, the Mary Magdalene could go announce this to the disciples and they could be like, okay, but Jesus is probably mad at us. And Mary could easily say, no, no, no. He called you his brothers. He loves you. He doesn't hate you for your sin. He wants you to come closer and he's coming to meet you. He's on his way. That's the good news. It's just amazing. Everything's gone. Jesus thrown the, their sin as far as the east is from the west because he knows their hearts want to follow him. Then we get the soldiers, verse eleven. Now while they were going, Matthew kind of transi- transitions. Meanwhile, while the women were heading up here, those soldiers woke up from being fainted, and some of the guard of the city came. In, some of the guard came into the city and reported the chief priests all the things that had happened. Again, we don't know that these are Roman soldiers from the book of Matthew. Because he just said that like Pilate gave them a guard, but it doesn't. we don't know if that's a Roman guard or not. It could be like the, pre, the temple mount guards that are there. So I just want to get it clear. But they're still guards, and they're still accountable for guarding that thing they were told to guard. So the fact that they came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that happened. Like if they're Roman soldiers, they might have just bolted because it's death if you don't keep your duty as a Roman soldier. They go into the priest and they say, Hey, we just want to let you know an angel came and opened up the tomb and was sitting on it, and we couldn't even stand in its presence, and the body's gone. And so when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave them a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while he slept. That's ridiculous. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. We're going to make sure that the pilot doesn't kill you. Like, we'll protect you. Don't worry. So they took the money and did as they were instructed, and, and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews to this day, reported to the chief priests. Notice how Matthew contrasts the women with the soldiers. The women are told to go send a message, which is true, and they do it with great joy, and, 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 and they're told not to fear. The soldiers basically have a message that they bring to the priesthood. They're told to lie, and they have deep fear about what'll happen to them, and then both of them have a story that's commonly reported. You got the Christians and you got this lie that starts to get spread. So it's amazing that Matthew makes this record and records this because in 20 years after Jesus, this is something that's, that's there's people that don't believe in Jesus. So he's recording it. If you're trying to convince people or persuade people, this is an odd passage to put in your text unless it actually happened. And you're not afraid of the truth because you know the power of God. So then you put it in there because it's what happened. It's an origin story. Um, It says the soldiers reported to the chief priests, and what they reported would be a witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The priests know about it. They saw the eclipse. They felt the earth shake. They would have been uniquely seen the veil in the temple torn in two. And then they're told by the soldiers, Jesus is rose on the third day. If I were in that room, I think I would... Try to reconsider what Jesus told me. And some of them do. Joseph of Arimathea is of the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus is of the priesthood. Some of those priests instantly say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And they convert. They're consulted. They talk about it. What's amazing is they talk about this fact, but then they come up with a scheme to do it. And they give them a large sum of money. In the Greek, that means a sufficient sum of money. And they're paying people to lie. So oddly enough, they can't take the money back from Judas but they can use the temple funds to go and break a commandment with it. Crazy, the hypocrisy that they have. Not only that, but this is kind of ridiculous because they're saying that they were sleeping while the, a group of disciples came and moved this massive stone with a wax seal on it. So they're, even if you fell asleep on the guard, wouldn't that wake you up? right? And that the earth shook? Like the earthquake didn't wake you up. None of this. You're just sleeping right through the whole thing. So they're, they're being told to say something that makes them look horrible. So all of this they're doing in the full knowledge of the resurrection. It was the same priest that mocked Jesus on the cross. Last chapter, verse 42, where they said he saved other people. Can't he save himself? If he's the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we'll believe him. Well, he didn't right then. But isn't this account from the soldiers? answering exactly that challenge? Well, he did save himself from the cross. He did resurrect. But, so it's a horrible lie, and they're saying we would believe in you if this happens, but then it happens and they still don't believe in him. So miracles don't seem to convince people. It, there seems to be something in the heart that needs to change. Deuteronomy 30, 19, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you. I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life that both you and your descendants may live. These leaders literally choose death over life. And that's always been the case, even in the law. And by the way, the heaven and the earth have both bore witness to Jesus' resurrection. So Deuteronomy comes true in an an absolutely prophetic way. Stole them while they slept. Just silly. I'm not even going to get into that. Commonly reported among the Jews. It's still commonly. like One of the ways people deal with Jesus is, well, it was a mass hallucination, Right? which is frankly impossible psychologically. Like we don't hallucinate the same things together. Or it was a fainting or a swooning argument. Well, Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He just swooned on the cross. But then wouldn't he be a bloody mess when he woke up? Or you try getting beaten by a cat of nine tails and then hung on a cross for uh, three hours and then put in a tune with no air and see how long you last. Like let's test that theory and, and let those people be the first to test it. Four accounts, Paul, Roman records, Josephus, All the epistles that are written back and forth are dependent on the resurrection being true. Massive record and account of all of this. So when we're called to live by faith, that has to do with what we do and how we carry out our life. It's not that we're asked to put aside what we know to be true or to deny the facts of things. Like that's not what God's ever asked of his people. Verse 16, then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. They got a secret meetup spot. They're going to be there. Matthew 26, 32, Jesus said, after I'm risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. He tells them exactly where to go. So they follow his instructions. By the way, when we get to the end of this chapter, he's told us exactly what we need to do. We're supposed to follow his instructions. It doesn't change for 2,000 years. So Matthew skips a number of appearances in Jerusalem here because it's not his point. And when you get to the other gospels, there'll be a lot more accounts of Jesus' appearing, that get included in those Gospels. Matthew's trying to get us to these last few verses. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Matthew gracefully doesn't name Thomas here, and he includes more than just Thomas. This was hard to believe. Jesus rose from the dead. It's, the idea here is Matthew includes a plural. They worshipped him, but some of them doubted, uh, because he knew that this was tough for all the disciples. It took a few days for them to get around to this. Verse 17, when they saw him that makes the disciples the fourth of the witness groups. Angel, women, the, Roman gu- or the, the guards of the tomb, Roman or temple guards, and then the disciples. So many today can see this is true when we witness or we see Jesus, we change. It changes who we are, and it, and it does the same thing with all of these groups, some for good, some for bad. Heaven and earth are now included, women and men are included, Jews and Gentiles are now included, believers and non-believers. Matthew's included all of these groups as he's gone through. There's a purpose to what he's doing in in 27 and 28. All these different groups encounter the fact that Jesus is rose, and they respond in different ways. Belief is not the same thing as worship. I can believe Jesus rose from the dead and not worship him. Even the devils believe that Jesus rose from the dead. They don't doubt that fact. The, The question is, Are we going to believe and then follow and do it without hesitation, like his disciples did? So it's a natural reaction to accept the resurrection of Jesus, but then there's that taking of steps that gets to be the tough part. What does it look like to follow Jesus? So they doubted, the word in the Greek there is distasio. It's to waver or to think twice about something or to do a double take. It's not to disbelieve, it's a different Greek word. It's to doubt, which means wait, what? Jesus rose from the dead? And to just kind of stop and do that double take, distasio. Uh, the root word for that is dc, or twice, to think a second time, to, do, to think twice about what's going on. So did they doubt or did they believe? Yes, they believed, but they had to do a double take on that. Like, what does that mean? And what does this look like? So verse 17 has him in Galilee. They see him. Jesus talks to them in verse 18, which means he has, he has cords with which he can speak right? So there's a real body there. It's not a hallucination that is able to do this. They don't doubt the final decision. They keep moving forward. Other gospels include Thomas touching the hand. And so they had this thing where they're like, are you real, Jesus? Like, are we all seeing that? Like, can we touch you? And, and, and Jesus gracefully is like, go ahead and poke, you know, do what you need to do to get this settled in. And I think he still does the same thing for us today. Acts 1.3, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Boy, history loves to suppress that information. Like the world loves to point out that Jesus spoke to many people and for 40 days. So they used these witnesses, they, they did it, and then we get to the end of this chapter, the Great Commission. Oh, I love this. Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. One appointment, one recorded meeting in Matthew that he has. There's lots of others in the other gospels. This is the thing Matthew said. This is the thing that's important that you need to know. Jesus has all authority. From the very beginning of this book, it's been about kingship. And if Jesus has all authority, it means he's the king. And the great, the great commission that he's about to give only matters if he's the king. Because if he's the king, we obey him because we're his servants. So Jesus starts in verse 18 by declaring his rank. I am your father by all the, this is like, this is like, you know, how you do these. So when a, when a pastor marries a couple, he'll say by the power vested in me. And that makes it real. When a, when a dad disciplines their kid, they'll say, they'll say, why? And And I'll say, because I'm your dad. And I announce my authority before I give a command. And Jesus is doing that. All authority has been given to me on heaven and earth, so listen to what I'm about to say. All authority. Jesus claims all authority, which... 2818 is the best response in the world to Jehovah's Witnesses. If he's taken all authority, it means he has the authority of God himself. That would be a part of all as a category, right? So when Jesus says this, he is announcing his divinity and his holy authority all the other gospels talk about how Jesus is at the right hand of God. He is the right hand of God. He is the power and voice and the actor of the Godhead. So he comes with as at the right hand of God and sits there because he has all authority. And, and to read past that, I think the next verse doesn't land as much. The power is in Jesus's hands and that's the right place for the power to be. Frankly, We need Jesus to be all-powerful because only the all-powerful God can forgive us of our sins. And so it's essential. And and so he shares that with them. Uh, Some people would say that verse 18 indicates that as an incarnate human being for 30 years, that authority was given at this point after the resurrection, not before. I think that's crazy, like how many angels are on the head of a pin theology, right? Jesus gives no context to time on this. All authority has been given to me could mean past tense, present tense, or future tense. There's no tense on this necessarily. So it's a weird thing to start talking about how much authority Jesus had at the beginning of his ministry versus now. The reality is, as I talk right now, Jesus has all authority, right? So we can move forward on that premise. And here's how he moves forward. Verse 19, go therefore. Therefore, whenever you see therefore, we ask what it's there for because he has all authority and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you and lo I am with you always even to the end of the age amen what an abrupt ending to this gospel like just boom and this is these two lines are well, actually three lines but two verses Matthew ends on these as though they're the conclusion we don't need to know anything more. So all, so the other gospels have different goals they're trying to get, but Matthew is like, he's the king, he's given a command, we're done. And Matthew doesn't record the ascension. What he does record at the very end is, even to the end of the age, I am always with you. In other words, he's still with us. Matthew doesn't show Jesus going up into heaven somewhere. Matthew leaves the king in his position on earth and doesn't move him from that spot and leaves that with the last thing in our head. If there's a real king, we're still following him today. He's still with us even today because we're still in that age. So go therefore is is sending them out. It, it, it isn't referencing the resurrection. And I think that's really interesting. It's referring to verse 18, his authority. So Jesus isn't like, because I'm resurrected, go and make disciples. He says, because I have authority, go and make disciples. That's a really interesting, very subtle difference. We're not to go out and make disciples because Jesus rose from the dead. That's the good news we tell them. But we're out to do it because he's our living king. And we're supposed to obey him in his authority. So this is a powerful command. It is, it, some would say the great commission is the great command. And he's given a lot of commands through the book of Matthew right? He's told his disciples how to live and how to be and how to interact with people, but he leaves them with this final one, which is to teach them to observe all things that I've commanded you. So it's a command that includes all the other commandments. Everything you've read in the book of Matthew, that's what we teach people. Frankly, people expand that even more. As he went through the Old Testament with them and the other gospels say, he's the, the all things there is referring to the entirety of the Old Testament and all the things Jesus taught. So he's basically saying, teach people the word, what I have taught you. So he's sending out ambassadors with the authority of a king. And for you and me, the utterance may be given to me that I might open my mouth boldly and make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I might speak boldly as I ought to speak. Even Paul understood this command and he treated it as an ambassador's. So ambassadors in the ancient world, they didn't have telephones and faxes and things like they didn't have jets to move back and forth. An ambassador would leave a kingdom and reside in the other kingdom speaking with the heart of their king. And God would send them, or the king would send them messages that they were supposed to proclaim. So when Jesus says, here's the commands that I've given you, I want you to go live in this nasty, icky, sinful world, and I want you to tell everybody what I have said and what I've done. That's our lives. That's what we get to do. And so we have to deal with all these people that don't live in our kingdom, they don't serve our king, but we're supposed to communicate to them what our king says. And that can be, and they can respond in all the ways that they've responded in chapters 27 and 28. An ambassador is supposed to retain their culture, beliefs, and passions, even though they live in another culture. We are not of this world. We are foreigners. We are aliens. That concept comes up again and again and again, and Matthew plants that seed right here. The make disciples is a really important word. It's Mathayutu in the Greek. A disciple and a rabbi went hand in hand in the ancient world. And when Jesus called the disciples, he said, come follow me. And they left what they were doing and they followed him. In other words, nothing, their fishing boats didn't matter for the day. That didn't mean go, they didn't ever fish again, Dan. They would, but they left what they were doing to follow a rabbi and then they traveled with them. You remember? They lived with him, they ate with him, they did things with him. So when Jesus starts to build the church, he says, make disciples by implicit nature. A learner and a rabbi live life together. They go to parties together, they eat meals together, they hang out at the car show together, they do baptisms together. We live life together. And so that that idea of doing that is really interesting. He says, for them to make disciples. And at the same t- token, the true teacher is Jesus because they're supposed to teach what Jesus said. And so we become a teacher as we make disciples, but we're not really the teacher, right? We're just supposed to instruct others like, hey, do you know what Jesus says about that? You know, hey, you know what the Bible says? The Bible has an answer for that. And we, we're an annoying little ambassador. The Bible says this, the Bible says that. Jesus says this, God says that. Disciples then are made and they're not one. I think this is an interesting idea in the first century when a when a, a disciple comes to a teacher it has nothing to do with what they believe as they come into that relationship it has to do with how they learn to live by following that teacher so as we follow Jesus it's not who we are as we enter the relationship with Jesus like we're saved even as yet sinners Jesus still loved us but we become something different as we follow that teacher right if i came to a teacher and said i already know everything i'm just going to be your student i'm going to be your disciple but i know everything you're not they're not doing a darn, you're not matching this relationship at all. So we come to a teacher going I need to learn what you have to teach me. And we do that. So to make a disciple is not to convert them. There's a different Greek word for conversion. It's it's epistrepho. Jesus doesn't use that word here. Epistrepho is to change your mind, to turn from how you thought before. He uses the word disciple and it's not the same thing as convert. So our goal in this sense, the idea of believing in Jesus isn't even mentioned here. It's not what to believe, it's what not to believe, it's what to observe and how to live a life. Does that make sense? It's not a change of mind, it's an ongoing change of lifestyle that happens over time. Walking with Jesus is how Paul puts it, right? There's nothing to do with conversion in the Great Commission, and I think sometimes we we misplace that. Um, There's no uses of the word convert in any version of the Bible except the King James version. They use the word disciple. So the idea of believing in Jesus is just not only not mentioned, um, it's, it's, it's an idea that we should be abiding in God's word and living it as we learn it in process. This is the church. We meet every week. Some churches meet more than once a week so we can study God's word, so we can go out and live God's word. And our goal is to bring as many people into that church-like relationship to be discipled as possible. And that's a, that's a powerful commission. Um, it's so much more than just meeting someone. It has to do with being friends with somebody over time. The idea of following a person implies they're worthy of being followed, to live like that person lives. That means we have to live in such a way that other people want to be like us. They see the joy that we have and they want to live and learn from what, how we do that. John 17, 6, I've manifested your name to the men whom you've given me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they've known all the things which you've given me are from you, for I've given to them the words that you gave to me. And they received them and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Then Jesus says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. Jesus has taught them over three years how to live. Now they need to go do it without him. So Jesus' ministry focuses on a very small group of people, those people he's teaching. He's chosen them, and he's chosen broken disciples to do his work. Not because God needs us. Like, God doesn't need us for the Great Commission. He could do an earthquake and an eclipse right now. He wants us because it's the relationship that we're training people into. It's the relationship God wants. It's the relationship that endures into eternity. What I believe after an eclipse is short term. How I live over time in relationship is eternal. And God wants us not because he needs us, but because he he loves us and he wants us to be part of that partnership to do that with him. So when we get to heaven, we have friends, right? That's the joy for God. All the nations, unmistakable territory. Some people think disciples had territories no, we're supposed to do this in every place on the earth, all the nations. Nation here didn't mean a political group. It generally meant groups of people all over the earth, all nations. Unmistakable territory. Everybody. Notice he doesn't put in a command to circumcise. That becomes one of the big issues. we are supposed to bring people into the, you're supposed to disciple them and get them circumcised. And the they, church really wrestles with this. But Jesus, they could have just read this. The, Jesus doesn't say make disciples of all men and get them circumcised that's not, just not there. And if they just stuck with what he said, they wouldn't have struggled with this so much. They eventually worked that up. He gives a second command, baptize them. Baptism is a free surrender to Jesus, a visible commitment that you're turning from your sin. You're actually dying to yourself, and we're going to bury it under the water. And what comes out of the water is washed clean and renewed with a new life in Christ. And the new life that's in Christ is what goes forth from that baptism ceremony. And Jesus says, make disciples of them, baptize them. You don't make a free will choice to get baptized unless you want to change your life, right? So that's the, the baptism then is the symbol of a conversion or a belief system that's not only changed for a moment, but it's a commitment for the rest of your life. And that's very different than a simple changing of the mind because minds can change back. So baptizing is never forced. It's always something that the person brings up like we don't just go and say, have you been baptized? baptized?" We don't take our babies and baptize them, right? That's not baptism. It might be a commitment or a dedication, but it's not baptism. Um, So people introduce the idea. They say, I want to do it. I want to make an allegiance to God. I want to be, I know enough about God to where I want to be part of, I want to be an ambassador too, right? I've been drinking the milk for long enough as Peter chastised the church. How long do you need to drink the milk? What more do you need to know? Go tell people about Jesus, then baptism's that idea. I'm done drinking the milk. I'm, re- I'm ready to be part of the team. So some traditions try to force baptism. There's a really ugly church tradition where colonists would come over and they'd force baptized native groups. Horrible stuff. Has nothing to do with the Bible. But they'd think that there's something magic in baptism. It's not. It's a symbol. So we announce that they're dead. We bury them in the water. God raises them up to life. And then the coolest part of that verse, he says, in the name of Look carefully at that. We do it into the literally, that's into the name of something. So, when you're baptized, you're baptized into the name of something. Like it's the same word that gets used when you enter a house, right? And if you look at the rest of the book of Matthew and the house thing that we're dealing with here, when we're baptized, we've come into the family of Christ, we're now in the household. And that idea of being baptized obviously, the thief on the cross, Jesus promised to be in heaven too which, let's put baptism in its correct place. It's a symbol. You can go to heaven without being baptized. Or if you die during baptism, which would be really horrible, you're still going to go to heaven, right? But this idea that we are laborers together with God, we are the husbandry, yet we're in God's building, 1 Corinthians three nine. We come into his household, and we're part of the family. So baptize them into the name of, and the, here's the other thing, that name there is singular. Did you see that? In the Greek there, it's... It, it's very clear that in the name of is a singular word, yet it has three aspects of the singular name, the Trinity. Baptize them. It doesn't say in the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It says into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Again, he's making a claim that he is God. Very, very clearly. But now I come to you in, in these things I speak in the world, John 17, that I might have joy, my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word. And the world has hated them because they're not in the world, just as I'm not in the world. And I don't pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They're not of this world, just as I'm not of this world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they may be sanctified in the truth. Matthew says you don't need to hear any of that. You just need to know, go make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the the Son, and the Holy Spirit. John gives a lot more detail behind it. Matthew's just like, these people should get that. And he, he wraps up fairly quick. Maybe the, like the cops were coming, and he had to just finish the book quick. But I, I get the sense that Matthew's like, there's one important command, and that's how I'm going to end my gospel. He rose. He gave this command. Verse 19 is who we teach, all the nations, how we teach them towards baptism in God's name, not... A, We don't do it in our name. And Paul, remember, addressed that. We don't do this in Paul's name or Apollo's name. We do this in Jesus' name. So, again, that goes back to that idea of don't put your pastors on pedestals. We don't do this in our own name. I'm irrelevant. If something happens to me, somebody else steps up to teach. The work keeps going. Verse 20 is what we're supposed to teach. In Acts 5, they're teaching. Acts 18 they're teaching. Acts 20 they're teaching. Acts 28 they're teaching. Paul is teaching and says, have, you have all heard what I've said. Teaching, 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 teaching. The early disciples did not go out and try to get verbal commitments. They went out and made disciples of people through teaching again and again and again. Come to church. Come to Bible study. Come hang out so you can be comfortable coming to Bible study. Come learn what there is to say. Verse 20 teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. One of the problems with verse 20 is we have a thing in the church right now where we teach people to observe all the things we want to observe. Not all the things, just some of the things. You know, if you can just be a really nice person, you know, God's, God will appreciate that. But go ahead and, and, and live indiscriminately with your sexual purity. And go ahead and watch whatever you want to You know, go ahead and hang out at whatever event you want to hang out at. Observe all the things that I've commanded you. Live with purity. Live with grace, peace, love, hope, rejoice. Jesus is the teacher, and we simply share what Jesus taught us. Uh, Tom, you asked a question before. How do you know you're ready to teach? Well, do you understand the chapter? You're ready to teach. Like, look for and pray for God to give you opportunities to teach people. Let me, let me open up to Matthew 28 with you and let's talk about that thing. Or you're asking about that, let's open up the Bible and read it together and we'll search out the meaning of this. And frankly, when you get stuck on stuff, you just call Steph. So remember, <laughs> the Jewish rabbis lived with their students, took them in, ate with them, lived with them so they could show a way of life that was holy. We do the same thing in the church. This establishes the church. Observing all things is not selective. We don't just do the stuff we like, but we do the stuff God says. And, and that's, um, you know, Exodus 12, 17 hasn't changed. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for in this selfsame day I've brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. Part of God's command are the celebrations, are the feasts. I make this point and you all laugh at me, but Part of the command of God is to eat together, barbecue together. So however, those things that he commanded in the Old Testament, the statutes, the celebrations, the worship, tithing, Sabbath, those things don't save anybody in the Old Testament. None of those things, they're all works. And the law doesn't save us, but it's still a blessing to live under it. So as believers, we want to do all the things God commanded, knowing that doing the things doesn't save us. So all of the things is the content of everything Jesus said. Part of what he said is that you have to be saved by faith in Christ alone. So then we go do all those awesome things, but we don't think the things save us. It's Jesus that saves us. Matthew 5, 4, he's already taught this. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. We love that command. Like We love that teaching. We could teach that to everybody. Oh, you're sad? God loves you. And that God loves you message can be when you bring that as the only thing to the table, it's really appealing, but it's not the full counsel of God. Then we skip the parts we're convicted by. I'll give you two that convict me. Maybe you're not convicted by these. Matthew 6:25. This is another thing Jesus taught in the same book. Therefore, I say to you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, what you shall drink, not yet for your body or what you shall put it on, put on, not for the life more than meat and the body more than raiment. Don't worry about anything. Like, how hard is that one to follow? You know, how am I going to retire? Don't worry about it. Follow the Lord. Matthew 7, 21. Not everybody that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) But he that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. If you're not doing God's will, you're going to burn in hell. That's a really unpopular message with a lot of places and a lot of people right now. But it's God's teaching. It's his command, and we need to know it. And then he has the and lo. I, these things make me. I just think they're so precious. And lo, in the Greek, that's a demonstrative particle. It's the same thing as look at me. Behold, see this thing. So if it's the beginning of the sentence, we re, we would translate it, behold, I have said these things. But when it's in the middle of the sentence, it's still demonstrative. And lo, so he's so again. Let me read that verse with that in mind. Um, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And look at me, I'm with you. I haven't left you. And this is what Matthew leaves us. He doesn't leave us with an ascendant God. He leaves us with a God that's with us right now. And that part is, that, part of, that particle that gets put in there, Jesus is saying, I need you to see me right now. I'm right in front of you. And I'm not going to leave you. So and then he finishes with that, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We're not alone. Nothing we do is outside the presence of Jesus Christ when we're doing his will. If we observe and follow him just like the women, he's going to meet us on the way. Some people say, well, I haven't really met Jesus yet. Keep doing what he told you to do and wait for the Holy Spirit to move. Stay in the commandments and, and trust that God's true. Matthew 5:18. For verily I say to you, till heaven and earth pass, not one jot or tittle shall nowise pass from the law till it be fulfilled. Read the Old Testament. And, and if a church is saying, we don't mess with the Old Testament, run from that church. Run from any teacher that says the Old Testament is not important. Absolutely horrible. Always. <laughs> is the, in the Greek is pas, which means the entirety of every single day. It's a really great word, pas. Uh, each and everything that's there, the full counsel of God. Think and, of the position and authority that God gives this command with. All full authority, follow all the commandments as best as we can. If Jesus is with us, we don't even have to fear death. Don't fear stuff. Don't worry about things. If he's with us, we have full authority by proxy to teach God's word without fear. Oh, what if I screw it up? What if R.C. points out that I messed something up? You pray about it. You confess it. You turn from it. You fix it. You keep going forward. We're never going to stop. If God's with us, we have immediate peace in our presence. And lo, look at him. He's with you. If we think we're greater than other people, look at him. We're not. (laughs) If we think we're less than other people, look at Jesus. You're not. Full authority by proxy, full peace in his presence, full joy in the truth and hope of salvation, full knowledge of the love of God, full love for other people and for ourselves. He's here. He's in charge. And then the last piece until the end of the age. What's an age? What's he talking about? What do you mean age? There's been ages on this earth? Yes, there have been. Biblically, there was the age before sin, the garden, Adam and Eve. Then there was sin, and then that all fell, and then humans did whatever they wanted in sin and rebellion, and then God intervened, and there was Noah and the rainbow, and the rainbow doesn't symbolize transvestites. It actually symbolizes that there was a flood on this planet, and then a Noahic covenant was made after the flood. Don't murder people and such. That stuck for a while until nations started to form, and then God intervened again with Moses, the Exodus, and he created a law that was in writing and codified that judges could administer at the gates of every city, and this became the Mosaic Covenant, the law. And then they lived under that Mosaic Covenant for years and years and years and years. Then we had Joshua and the prophets and God's nation formed. Israel became on the earth, And ultimately, by the time Jesus comes, Israel had failed to carry out the law. So that process didn't work so well because humans screwed it up. We needed a new covenant. And when Jesus says to the end of the age, he's saying this is a new covenant. This is the start of a new age. And as I come back and I give you this command, as we go out and make disciples of all people and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that's an age of human history that's defined not by who's in charge, other than Jesus, but it's defined by the way in which God's people act during this age. Just like under the Mosaic Covenant, it was defined by how Israel acted under that age. We then become the defining part of this age. And you know what? According to Revelation, we're going to screw this age up too. But God will hold his remnant of people that are loyal to him and that love him and that cling to his feet until he says, you got to go do other things, ladies. But those people that just run to God and run to the obedience of God, they are going to grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, Matthew 13, I will say to the reapers, first gather the tares, bind them into bundles and burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. How beautiful is that if you're wheat? How hard is that to share with the tares? You're in trouble. Become wheat. And then he ends with one word. In the Hebrew, it means firm. Amen. Actually, the word amen can be used at the beginning of a sentence too, and when that's used, the Greek would translate it as verily, which Jesus has used a lot. Verily I say unto you. It's the word amen. Amen. It's a Hebrew word that's getting used in the Greek here because it's a unique word to that language, but it was commonly understood even by Greek-speaking people. Just like in the English today, we say amen at the end of our prayers. We could say verily at the beginning of our prayers. It's the same Hebrew word. Means truth or firmness, foundation. Amen. Verily I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle shall nowise pass from the law until it's f- fulfilled. We already read that one. Truthfully, foundationally. Amen. Jesus is with us. He's the King. He has full authority. That's a firm foundation. Amen. Vests in the job of teaching disciples everything we know about them, baptizing them into the kingdom of God. Amen. It's a firm foundation, we don't need much more than that. How simple is it? That's simple enough for a five-year-old to understand. Be in the kingdom, love the Lord, follow him and, and serve him. And it's, it, it's just that simple, but at the same time, I, know, I, I understand it's also just that complex. Um, but Matthew wraps it up, he's still with us. And Matthew, I think, as a writer, would have us believe Jesus is right here with us now. Look and see it and believe it. It hasn't changed. And we hold tight to that faith till the day he returns. And the whole world sees it. But for now, they're seeing through a glass dimly and we get the pleasure of having that veil lifted from our eyes and we can see the Lord at work in our lives. Amen? Verily. Lord, we thank you for your gift. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for Matthew. Thank you for the blessing you put on that man to write this book. Uh, Thank you for the way in which it's simple to understand, but there's a depth to it that's stunning. Thank you, Lord, for everything you've done for us. Lord, that you have committed yourself as a propitiation for our sins. Lord, thank you for that sacrifice. And Lord, for offering a peace offering back to us. For reconciling ourselves to you because we were incapable of doing that. Lord, we just pray for everyone we know that isn't following you with their whole hearts, minds, and souls. And Lord, bring them into your kingdom. Lord, move their hearts. May we live in such a way that they want to know and be disciples of a new way of living to be part of a new kingdom. Lord, move in our hearts in such a way that we run from sin. We're abhorred by the crap that brings into our life. And Lord, we run towards purity because we see how amazing it is. And Lord, our flesh fights against that all the time and every day. And we know that you're with us every day and all the time. So Lord, help us to defeat temptation so we can live like you did. And Lord, you knew temptation too, but you still lived righteously. So help us to live righteously. Uh, and to do it in a way that we're serving our King. Help us to be ambassadors that when we speak, it's your words coming out of our mouth. That we become nearly invisible and all people can see are our King. In Jesus' name.